My, um, the guy who taught me how to preach, or the guy I first heard preaching, and really, and it's really kind of a cool story, which I'll spare you right now, but uh, this guy named Steve Brown, and uh, he's certainly one of my mentors in, in the ministry world, and uh, Steve introduced me to the work of pastor, author, sociologist, guy by the name of Tony Campolo. Anybody familiar with Tony Campolo? No, okay. He's... Um, he and Steve used to have a, have a show, a, a little TV program, and uh, they would, I think they called it Hashing It Out, and they would talk about differing views of their theologies, and Steve and Tony kind of differed a bit on their, on their theology, but I'll tell you that listening to their discussions was always enlightening, and it gave me a great appreciation of just how diverse the followers of Jesus can be. Well, I want to uh, relate to you a story that, that Tony shares a story about God's grace. As it, as it went, a number of years back, Tony traveled to, to Hawaii. He's a, he's a well-known speaker and would speak at all sorts of venues. So he traveled to Hawaii and he arrived there from the East Coast and it was the middle of the night. But he was hungry because his body was on East Coast time and even though Hawaii was the middle of the night, for him he was ready for breakfast. So he searched for a place to eat. After a while he found a small diner and he went in, and he walked up to the counter. The guy behind the counter's name was Harry. That was actually his name. I think that's actually um, mandated by the Chamber of Commerce that anybody who works behind a counter in a diner has to be named Harry. Anyway, so Harry came over and said, what do you want? And Tony said, a cup of coffee and a donut, please. So Harry poured the coffee and grabbed the donut off the shelf behind him, and as Tony ate his donut and sipped his coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the diner door swung open, and to Tony's discomfort, in walked nine women of the night. Made that nice for the little ones. They sat all around him, and they started talking to each other. So picture that scene. This pastor is sitting in this diner in the 3.30 in the morning in Hawaii in a strange place, drinking coffee, eating a donut, and surrounding him are nine of these women. So he felt kind of out of place and he was going to get up and leave. And he overheard the woman sitting beside him say, tomorrow is my birthday. I'm going to be 39 years old. And one of her friends said to her in a nasty tone, so what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want me to get you a cake and sing you happy birthday? Why do you have to be so mean? The lady next to Tony said, I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. And anyway, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I expect one now? Well, upon hearing that, Tony decided to take action. So he sat there, and the women finished whatever they were eating, and they got up and left. And Tony said to Harry, and this is a true story, did they come in here every night? And Harry says, yeah. And Tony says, what about the one that was sitting next to me? Does she come in every night? And Harry says, yeah, that's Agnes. She's here every night. Why do you want to know? Tony said, because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday. And he said, what do you think about this? What do you think about throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? And Harry responded, I love that idea. That's a great idea. Let's do it. And Harry called back to his wife who was working in the back room and shouted, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday, and this guy wants to go in with us and, and, and throw a party for her right here, right here tomorrow night. Well, his wife loved the idea, 
And Tony said to them, listen, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning at about 2.30, and I'll decorate the place, and I'll even get her a birthday cake. Nope, Harry said. Birthday cake is my thing. I'll make her a birthday cake. So the next day, 2.30 in the morning, Tony's back at the diner. He had gone out that day, picked up some streamers and balloons and cardboard signs that said, happy birthday. And, and he made a sign himself that said, Agnes, happy birthday. And they decorated the diner. Well, apparently word got out. Because by 3.15 a.m., every working woman in Honolulu that night was in the place. The place was wall-to-wall working women and Tony, and Harry, and the wife. So at 3.30 in the morning, in walks Agnes and her group, her friends, and everybody screams, happy birthday! And Agnes was stunned. Her mouth fell open, her legs buckled. Her friend grabbed her by her arm to steady her, and then everyone began to sing, happy birthday. Agnes's eyes teared up a bit. Then when the birthday cake came out, with all the candles on it, when Agnes saw that, She almost lost it, and she started sobbing openly. And she looked down at the cake, and she couldn't take her eyes off the cake. And she said very softly and very slowly, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry says, sure, it's okay. You want to keep the cake? Keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? Agnes said. Then, looking at Tony, she said, I, I live just, just a couple doors down the street. I want to take the cake home. I want to show it to my mother. If that's okay, I'll be right back, honest. So she got off the stool, and she picked up the cake, and she was carrying it like she was carrying the Holy Grail. It was so special to her. And she walked slowly toward the door and left the diner. And when the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Well, not knowing what to do, Tony broke the silence and he said, what do you say we pray? So Tony led a prayer for Agnes. He prayed for her salvation. He prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. And everyone agreed. When Tony finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? Tony said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment, and then he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that anywhere, because if there was, I would join it. I'd join a church like that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for... This morning, we thank you for gathering us together. We thank you for another opportunity to take a look at your word, to see what it means, to have it impact us, have it change us, have it draw us closer to you. God, as we continue on this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is week two in our four-week series on God's grace. If you'll remember, last week, we discovered that God's grace means much more than forgiveness. Grace can teach us a whole new way to live. Now, we desperately need this kind of grace in our lives. Today's Jesus followers face a challenge. Now, in the past, churches have taught God's people 
an inappropriately limited view of God's grace. God's grace scares the heck out of church people because God's grace sets us free. But the grace we've been taught isn't an amazing grace. Instead, it's a fickle, merit-based, limited grace. The grace of God, a reality that is greater than human intellect can grasp and more accessible than the air we breathe, has been captured by far too many people and domesticated, domesticated for limited weekly use. The grace of God, capable of reaching across every culture, every gender, every generation, has been reduced to mean simply forgiveness for everyone. We've co-opted God's grace for our use instead of for God's use. In our day, people find comfort in saying, God loves me just the way that I am. But people are less comfortable with the truth that God loves us so much that he won't let us stay just the way that we are. The last week we learned from Titus 2 that first God's grace saves and then God's grace teaches. Now, most of us are okay with the saving part, but we struggle when it comes time to learn how to deny ungodliness and worldly passions and how to live sensible lives and upright lives. Now, the reason that we as believers feel that way isn't really a mystery. Too often, week after week, the faithful are told of the work of Jesus on the cross. And they're told that there's nothing they can do to earn God's approval or salvation. By the way, that is true. But then, in seemingly contradictory fashion, we're encouraged then to live holy lives and to keep commandments, to walk in a manner worthy of God if you want God to keep on loving you. And that is not true. Pastor, theologian, and author Richard Foster, who wrote really the, the seminal book on the spiritual disciplines, he points out that the message of grace is something more than merely a means for gaining forgiveness. Foster says that in most pulpits around the country, there's a disconnect between the good news of Jesus' sacrifice and our calling to become the light of the world. Foster observed that after hearing the same message week after week, along with the same exhortation, now behave yourselves or else, believers don't grow in their faith, but rather they remain stuck. They remain in the same place. Here's what Foster said. Having been saved by grace, these people have been paralyzed by it. If we get stuck on the idea that God's grace is merely another way to describe forgiveness, we will never discover that there's grace for our everyday living. There's grace for our relationships. There's grace for our ministry to others. In the Bible, there are connections between grace and truth, grace and power, grace and spiritual gifts, grace and thanksgiving, grace and generosity, grace and provision, grace and suffering, grace and destiny. There's more, but you get it, right? If our view of grace is limited to just receiving forgiveness, we simply won't understand how to receive grace, how to live in grace, and how to depend upon God's grace in our lives. Now, Jesus taught Peter and John and Paul and countless other believers how to live his kind of grace-filled life. So how does grace apply to everyday life in, in a manner that we're conscious of it and that we know what to do with it? Now, 
To people who've been in church for a while, grace means that Christians, and I always kind of scare quote that, talk to me later, I'll tell you why. But Christians have gotten a great deal. In church circles, grace has variously been defined as not getting what we deserve or God's unmerited favor. We talked about that the other week. And these definitions are true, but they only tell part of the story. And a mere partial understanding of grace can actually do harm to our spiritual formation. When we limit our understanding of God's grace to, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, or there's nothing good inside of me, I'll always be a sinner because that's what I'll always do. If you think that way, you're missing something. You're missing something important. Christian author and university professor Dallas Willard warned against blindly accepting the idea that the low level of spiritual living among professing Christians is to be regarded as only natural or only what's expected. Willard suggested that the notion that our destiny as God's people is constant failure and that Jesus' ministry is nothing but unending forgiveness has convinced too many believers that their cosmic state is to be a spiritual infant forever. Dr. Willard continued that we focus too much upon what takes sin away and neglected considering what the Holy Spirit has put in us by God's grace once he saves us. God's grace is the cure for sin, but that is only the beginning. Our life with God starts with the cure, but the possibilities of new life in Christ experiencing God's amazing grace are quite literally endless. I have a pastor friend who ends every prayer with, forgive us for the many ways we have failed you. In your name we pray, amen. Whether he's thanking God for the food before a meal or asking God for wisdom for an important decision, that's his default closing. That's like his signature at the end of his email. Now, I'm sure that he's sincere every time he prays it, but I can't help but wonder if Jesus ever gets tired of hearing it. I have a lot of these images in my head of, of Jesus. And again, I don't really specifically but look at him, but just think about, is he ever going, how did you get that from what I said? Or why do you think it's so, why do you think grace is so limited? No friendship on earth could ever survive if one partner constantly whined, I'm so sorry for what a rotten friend I am. What kind of healthy relationship requires a constant rehashing of our own inadequacy? You know, when we think like that, we miss the beauty of God's grace. We get paralyzed by grace. So all of that to say, what do we do? How should we properly consider God's grace? Well, I would suggest we ask God. And with that, we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews. Again, I'll put up the verses on the screen, so they'll be right there for you. You can open up in your Bible if you like. Quick background on the, verse, on the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written by, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. He didn't say, and the clues weren't really very good. It's on my list of questions to ask God when I get to heaven. Hey God, who wrote Hebrews? I'm going to go, oh my gosh, wow, I never saw that coming. Here's what we do know. We do know that Hebrews was written prior to 70 AD. Why 70 AD? Because that's when the Roman general Titus destroyed the Hebrew temple, the Jewish temple, and there could be no more sacrifices. And we know that since the writer is still talking about the sacrifices, it must have been written before the temple was destroyed. And it was written to Jewish believers at the time who were not very strong in their faith. And they were actually considering leaving following Jesus and reverting back to Judaism. 
Now, in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, the writer discusses how the Jews used to seek God's forgiveness prior to Jesus' arrival. So this is Hebrews 10, 1. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. Verse 2, if they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt will have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. All right, what's happening here? Well, in verse three, the writer points out to his Jewish audience the way that the temple sacrificial system was insufficient to remove the penalty of sin from their lives. Now, some of you guys might know this because we have a lot of Jewish neighbors here in our area, but every year on the Jewish Day of Atonement, remember what that's called? Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur means covering or also atonement. Atonement's an English word that means to bring things together. It's, think of it as at-one-ment. So it brings things together. Kippur, in, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew, the name for the little hat that Jewish people wear is called a kippah. Okay, that's in Hebrew. In the Yiddish, the Jewish language that came from Europe, it's known as a yarmulke. You've probably heard of both of those words. But every year on the Jewish Day of Atonement, in their state of perpetual guilt, the Jewish people had to bring an animal sacrifice to the temple so that the priest could offer the animal's blood to God in order to cover over the sins of the people for another year. So just like in the case of my pastor friend, the picture being painted by that practice is that a person carries the burden of their sins with them every single day of their lives, and there's simply no way to ever break free of it. Dr. Willard refers to this as miserable sinner theology. I've also heard it referred to as wormology. Oh, I'm such a worm. Yeah, you've heard that. Essentially, it means If we're told often enough that we're miserable sinners who are unable to overcome our shortcomings in God's eyes, eventually we'll think of ourselves that way, even if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus. And that is not true. Do you remember? If the sun sets you free, you're free. You are free indeed. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But people who find themselves stuck in the old mindset, they never see their potential. The potential to be formed by God into Jesus' likeness. To see the work of Jesus as nothing but an endless offering for sin is to consign Jesus back to the Old Testament priesthood. And that's not who Jesus is at all. Back in Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews explained that the Old Testament priests had to offer daily sacrifices for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, Hebrews 7, 27, Unlike those other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices every day. How come? Jesus sacrificed himself once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. See, that's the message of God's grace. That's the message of how God's grace brings us salvation. Notwithstanding our inherent sinfulness, Jesus loves us anyway, and out of his love for us, he's made a way for us to be connected to God forever when we turn from the way that we were, from our natural self, 
and understanding how Jesus paid for all of our sins when he died, was entombed, and rose from the dead, ascending to heaven and promising someday to return to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. We devote our lives to his lordship, but that's not the end of God's grace. In fact, that's just the beginning. By God's grace, the resurrection power of Jesus changes us from the inside out. If we can usher Jesus out of the temple once and for all and receive Jesus not only as a source of forgiveness, but also as the master teacher of life, well, then we'll be on our way to experiencing the full work of grace. Grace not only wipes away sin, but it teaches us how to avoid sin. When we limit the work of Jesus to nothing but forgiveness, we lose sight of the possibilities of, of experiencing a new kind of life with Jesus right here, right now on this earth. Think of it like this, and here's an illustration for you. There were two students who each received full scholarships to Harvard University. You might have heard of it. Both students were bright. Both students felt intimidated by Harvard's reputation. Both students thought, I don't deserve to be here. Now, one student studied day and night. She gave it all she had. The other student, well, he enjoyed college life a little too much. He enjoyed the parties. He enjoyed the downtown area. He enjoyed the freedom of being on his own for the first time in his life. So what happened? By the midterm, the first student was still working hard and she was maintaining a B average. But the other student, well, he was failing every class and he was placed on academic probation. And by Christmas, the first student had a 3.0, but the second student, he flunked out. So we ask ourselves the question, which one laid hold of the opportunity given to them? We all know it was the first student, right? She was humble and he, she was hardworking. What about the second student? Well, everyone asked, how could he throw away an opportunity like that? God's grace is like that full ride to Harvard. It's beyond expectation. Every expense paid. It's a life-changing opportunity. And anyone watching these two students would conclude that the student who flunked out threw away a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The scholarship was the gift of grace. But the truth was, the scholarship was just the beginning. Through his grace, God does for us what we couldn't possibly do for ourselves. What's beyond our reach was paid for in full by Jesus. But that work is just beginning. Why would we squander the possibilities of our new birth in Christ? Instead, we need to receive the grace of God for what it is. It's a calling to a new kind of life right now. Grace goes beyond the fact that God picked up the tab we couldn't pay. Our new birth into, let's call it the Christian life, is an invitation into the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul gave us another picture of this phenomenon. When Paul came to know Jesus, he knew immediately that Jesus had laid hold of him for a purpose. Now, Paul was filled with gratitude for God's grace. When you read through Paul's writings in, in the book of Romans, and he says, the things I want to do, I... I can't do the things I don't want to do. I can't stop doing. But then he gives thanks for God's grace because he recognizes it. He was filled with gratitude for that grace and for that forgiveness. And he was eager to get on with God's work. He began to actually call himself God's fellow worker. 
Paul considered the believing community in the, in the area of Corinth. He, he thought of that as God's mission field. And he considered himself privileged to be a part of the effort. Now, the Apostle Paul was well aware that on his own, he didn't have the moral standing to do what he was called to do. He didn't have the moral standing to plant or to plant a, a community or to, or to preach or to pastor God's people in Corinth. Because, I mean, you guys remember, he had persecuted the Jewish people or Jesus' people for years. But Paul was also aware that his qualifications were never the issue. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But whatever I am now... It is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. We want to know something. What was true for Paul is true for us. When we become a part of God's family, we've also joined the family business. God's grace doesn't just wipe away our sin. God's grace asks us to join the work of the kingdom. Dallas Willard said this, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Do you see the difference? We don't earn God's favor. God has favored us long ago. But once we see God's favor, then we get to work side by side with God on his behalf for his people. That's the proper response to God's saving work. The Apostle Paul endured all of the hardships in his life in order to share what he himself had been given. Paul saw no trouble in seeing the connection between grace and effort. Richard Foster also helps us understand the complete and ongoing work of God's grace. Grace saves us from life without God. And even more, it empowers us for life with God. The grace we receive at our new birth is only the beginning. As followers of Jesus, we need grace for growth as well. The deeper side of grace is that when we begin to join the family business, we'll also begin to take on the family likeness. Here's another way to think of it. Co-laboring with Jesus, working together with Jesus, is the very activity that begins to grow the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. As we work side by side with Jesus, we begin to look more and more like him. Uh, Steve Brown likes to say to smell more and more like him, to conform to his image. To the believers in Rome, Paul said it this way, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. Jesus invites anyone who would follow him to come under his instruction and learn his way of life. He, Jesus said this in Matthew 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. The path to becoming like Jesus starts with his invitation, come to me. But once we do that, then Jesus has instructed us to bring him our burdens, to exchange them for his yoke. What's a yoke? When I say something funny, sorry, that was a dad yoke. 
I'll scrub that from the tape. Don't worry about it. A yoke is a large collar, usually a wooden collar. It works to transfer the strength of an ox or a horse to be at the disposal of someone else. You've seen those pictures, the old-timey pictures with the wooden yoke and the two oxen pulling a cart or something. So the oxen's strength is transferred to the cart so the cart can move. Okay, that's why you can't be yoked with an unequal, with a non-believer, because all of a sudden you've got one oxen pulling too far and the other one lying back and you just basically go in circles, right? Grace is like a yoke. It attaches, it allows us to attach ourselves, to yoke ourselves to God's strength so that God can do his work through us. Grace is about more than knowing. Grace is also about being and doing. If God wants to give us grace to be more like Jesus. And if it takes a little effort on our part, we need to get on board. That's how we take the yoke. That's how we learn from Jesus. There's a story about C.S. Lewis, one of my favorites, as you know, that really highlights and drives home the brilliance of grace. Here's what went down During a conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world were there and they were debating what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. So they began eliminating the possibilities. Incarnation? No, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection? No, again, other religions had accounts of returning from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. And he said, in a very C.S. Lewis kind of way, what's the rumpus all about? And he heard and replied that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among the world's religions. And Lewis heard it and very simply replied, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, with no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. We are taught from the time we're little, if you want A, you have to do B. Always, that is wired into us. Think about it in the world's religions. If you know of the world's religions, the Buddhists have an eightfold path to enlightenment. The Hindus have the doctrine known as karma. The Jews have a covenant that needs to be kept. The Muslims have a code of law. Each of those things offers a way to earn God's approval or their supreme being's approval. Only the the Christian theology, only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. We've been saved by grace. Through God's grace, God has made a way for us to be eternally connected to him, but that isn't all of it. By God's grace... God has also given us a new birth and a new heart and a new life's calling. And now it's incumbent upon us to do something with God's gift. We haven't been called to remain paralyzed in our salvation. We've been called to be mobilized to live lives on earth for God. To live lives that bring God glory and grant us access to God's abundant plan for us. So let's remember, don't miss this. God's extended his grace to us, and he's called us to live lives reflecting that grace in order to draw other people to him as well. So what do you say? Let's pledge to work 
this week on doing just that, all for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for another opportunity to take a look at your word and understand how you would have it apply in our lives. We thank you for leaving us your word so that we know what it is you've done, who it is you are, and what it is you would call us to do. God, we thank you for just the blessings that we have. We thank you for the opportunities that you'll put before us. We thank you for placing us here in this place, in this area, in this mission field. And we're excited to share the love that we have with those around us who so desperately need to meet you as well. God, we thank you for all that you do. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.